Hello and welcome to another episode of Protecting Patients, Preventing Harm. My name is Jasmine Saluja, and this is a bonus episode to my capstone podcast for my project, Protect to Prevent, on Medical Malpractice. With me today, I have Dr. John Gearhart. Dr. John P. Gearhart is a professor of pediatrics and urology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and serves as a director of pediatric urology at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. His clinical and surgical interests focus on the evaluation and treatment of children born with major cognitive birth defects, bladder extrophy, disorders of sexual development, and childhood urinary cancers. Dr. Gearhart received his MD from the University of Louisville School of Medicine in 1975, after an internship in surgery and residency in surgery and urology at the Medical College of Georgia, he completed a fellowship in pediatric urology at Alder H. Children's Hospital of the University of Liverpool School of Medicine in 1981. Following two years of urology at St. Mary's Hospital in Huntington, West Virginia, he completed a second fellowship in pediatric urology at Johns Hopkins in 1985 and joined the Johns Hopkins faculty thereafter as an associate professor of pediatric urology. Over the course of his distinguished career, Dr. Gearhart has been lauded as a pioneer in pediatric urology and reconstructive geniturinary surgery. He has published extensively and has received numerous awards and guest leaderships, lectureships. He is a member of several national and international professional organizations. Today's episode will cover Dr. Gearhart's background as a healthcare professional, his perspective on medical malpractice, the work he has done as an expert witness in malpractice cases, and some advice on what we can do to protect ourselves. Firstly, I wanted to give you a big thank you, Dr. Gearhart, for interviewing with me today. I'm confident that we can learn from you and also make a positive impact on our communities. Thank you for all the hard work you do as a healthcare professional and the work you are doing now to help spread awareness about the epidemic. My pleasure. All right, jumping in. First question. Can you give me some background on your career? What pushed you in the direction of becoming a pediatric surgeon? Your education, process, and practices. Well, um, I was going to be a horse breeder. I'm from Kentucky, and we're <laughs> very interested in race horses and horse breeding. Mm-hmm. And I went to undergraduate school with the idea of majoring in, embryo- in equine embryology and uh, being involved in the horse breeding industry. So as things came along and I learned more about human embryology, I found that to be far more captivating and interesting than equine embryology. So if I was going to have an interest in human embryology, then one way to put that to use, obviously, was with a career in medicine. Mm -hmm. And so there's a family practitioner in my hometown Uh, by the name of Dr. Paul Lewis, and I sort of um, hung out with him in the summers and on school vacations and so forth, and he Mm -hmm. taught me and showed me a lot, and he really uh, sort of pushed me uh, for a career Mm -hmm. uh, in medicine. So off to medical school I went uh, and enjoyed it tremendously, and I had uh, a couple of summer research externships while I was a medical student, Mm -hmm. and I got even more interested in in human embryology and congenital birth defects. And um, there I was. And so uh, after I did my residency in general surgery and urology, Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to do some specialty training. Those are called fellowships. Mm -hmm. So I went to England and I spent um, a year in Liverpool with the number one pediatric surgeon in the world by the name of Mr. Sir Herbert Johnston. Uh, uh Uh-huh. And uh, when I came back um, 
from the UK. I, I was looking for a job and there weren't many jobs at the time and my dad had been ill. So I went back to Kentucky and uh, joined a large group there uh, for a couple of years uh, until some jobs did come open. And I actually um, got a phone call from one of my old professors when I was a resident. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, they're looking for a faculty member at Hopkins. And the guy at Hopkins is a really good friend of mine. And if you'd like to really go up there and have a look, I'll call him. So he wow. did, and they did, and I did. And I came up and spent a couple of days at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And uh, they offered me a job. And I thought I would be here, oh, four, five, or six years, <laughs> and I'd go back to the South where I really wanted to go, yeah. preferably to Atlanta. Uh, and that was 35 years ago. And, Long time. I, and, and they haven't called from Atlanta since. <laughs> so um, I, I got interested in congenital birth defects first, and then I, and because of that, I got interested in children's surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, regarding pediatric surgery, what are some of the differences of, in how cases are treated slash conducted compared to other cases such as with adult surgery or family physicians? Well, children are not little adults. Children are children. Mm -hmm. And their, path, their physiology, their anatomy, their makeup, mm -hmm. uh, everything about the treatment of children is vastly different than that of adults. Mm -hmm. You have to keep the operating room a certain temperature. You have to keep the baby a certain temperature. Um, things like that make it much more different than adults. Um, in the last 15 years or so, the with the advent of prenatal ultrasound uh, and so many pregnant ladies getting ultrasound, uh, we know that these very special babies are coming. Mm -hmm. And we're not surprised. And so we can plan and we can plan a surgical team. We can plan the surgical timing and everything. And then sometimes, uh, in rare cases, we do things to the babies when they're still inside the moms. Mm. Um, but I think the biggest, one of the bigger things in, in children's surgery has been uh, the advent of 3D uh, prenatal ultrasound that ladies mm. have when they're pregnant. And now, um, if we see a baby's coming and they're very uh, complex uh, little people, uh, we can actually do fetal MRIs while the baby's still uh, in the uterus and look at them very carefully mm -hmm, and look at them very carefully before surgery. So um, the planning's more, the uh, care of the patient is more sophisticated and more precise mm -hmm. than in adults. That's very interesting. I didn't know about the um, fetal MRIs. Oh, that's, they're it's fabulous. They're, they're like operating on them without doing surgery. I mean, they, the fetal MRIs show you everything. A very important tool. Um, next question. Can you talk a little bit about what medical witnessing is in court cases and what you have done in relation to? Well, medical malpractice is something that affects all physicians. Mm -hmm. um, we're all um, at risk uh, for being sued for anything we do. Uh, especially surgeons. Yeah. I mean, not that family doctors and internists and pediatricians aren't sued because they are. But again, surgeons, we do invasive things yeah. and we make people sick. And sometimes people have hard times distinguishing what is a normal, and this is a big cause of medical malpractice, um, determining what is a, a normal complication 
of an operation versus something where there was what our lawyer friends define as a violation of the standard of care. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's cloudy and that that's a cloudy interface and, mm -hmm. and people have trouble determining what's a known complication and, and what's a, a, a violation of the standard of care. And that's yeah. where expert witnesses come in mm -hmm. on both sides, on the plaintiff side and on the, the doctor side to try to help the jury or the judge or whoever mm -hmm. decide was this really an act of a violation of the standard of care. Yeah. And, and they define the violation of standard of care as something a reasonable physician would do if they were faced with the same circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where medical malpractice uh, witnessing comes in, uh, is to try to help a judge or a jury or both, um, or a, uh, a body, a, a, an examining body, whatever, to decide mm -hmm. uh, what is really malpractice and what is just a complication mm -hmm. that happens. Mm -hmm. Good. Can you talk a little bit about the general liability issues in surgery? Well, huh, sure. We, we kind of alluded to it a minute ago. Yeah. There are a lot because you do invasive things to people. Mm -hmm. And um, every time you walk into an operating room, whether it's a simple case or whether it's a complex case, you're at risk. And mm -hmm. so what is being done, and this has been the big push uh, in the last few years, which is a great idea for patient safety, um, to try to limit the risk as much. You can't eliminate all risk, but to try to limit the risk profile uh, for a young patient, in our case, uh, to limit the risk uh, to the child of risk of safety in the operating room, safety during the procedure, safety after the procedure. So there's been a big push for that in the last few years, and it's a terrific effort uh, to try to make the operating room environment safer mm -hmm. for young children. Do you feel that there is a particular area of medicine heavily impacted by the medical malpractice epidemic? Kind of alluded to it with surgery. Well, if you look at across the board, um, the, a, a couple of three of the ones are obstetrics and gynecology mm -hmm. because the obstetricians are dealing with two lives, the life of the mother and the life of the, of the fetus. Mm -hmm. um, certainly neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. And those are probably, in my estimation, the three most risky specialities for medical malpractice exposure. Mm -hmm. Even in my research with my preliminary research, I, those were among the top that I found to be affected by medical malpractice the most. Yeah, I mean, sure, everybody wants to have a normal, healthy baby, um, but that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if a baby is born with a congenital birth defect or, or a complication or something, well, then it must be somebody's fault. And that's mm -hmm. not the case. I mean... Mm -hmm. um, but in that state, the family just wants... Correct. And, 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 you know, we need to meet their needs and, and, and tell them what can be done for the baby and the baby can be helped. But, you know, uh, fetal and embryologic development in a, in a young fetus is a roll of the dice. And, you know, you just have to roll the dice and hope that everything comes up the right way nine months mm -hmm. later. But that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. um, as much as you're comfortable speaking about what standards does your practice implement around public health to train its staff and avoid a malpractice? Is it something that's frequently discussed? Is it something you guys are Oh, it is. It is. We, we all have mandatory, um, all the doctors at Hopkins, all of, we all have 
whether you're a pediatrician or a surgeon or a radiologist, whatever, mm -hmm. we all have mandatory training on a yearly basis um, from, we have a legal office and there are a bunch of really smart uh, attorneys who uh, lecture us and, and teach us and tell us uh, things that we should do to limit our malpractice exposure, mm -hmm. such as um, really precise record keeping, mm -hmm. uh, things like that, um, being available for patients, um, and anything we can do, and patient safety too, to try to limit um, the risk to the patient and therefore the risk to us. Mm -hmm. How would you say practices work to decrease and increase the quality of care? Is this something that, say, in your training that you just said you have annually, is that a part of that? Well, certainly there are built-in standards uh, into the program mm -hmm. uh, to look at things like that. Like if a, in, in the surgical field, if a, if a surgeon is having more complications in their surgical procedures than we really think they should have, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, there are programs in place to go back and look at the indications for surgery, mm -hmm. uh, look at the execution in the operating room, look at the post-operative care, things like that to see, is this surgeon maybe uh, not paying attention to detail as much as they should? Are they mm -hmm. not uh, getting their patients ready for surgery as well as they should? Are they taking shortcuts in the operating room that they shouldn't, yeah. things like that the, to try to see if we need to re-educate that surgeon, you know, a little more with, with proper techniques. Uh, uh, maybe they need to work on their sterile technique a little bit more, mm -hmm. things like that. There's always, uh, they have um, committees that look if, uh, you know, if um, a gynecologist takes out, you know, uh, 50 uteruses uh, during hysterectomy, they look at those and they say, well, you know, uh, out of those 50 uteruses, you know, 20 of those were normal uteruses. Then, mm. then they would say, well, why are you doing that for? I mean, mm. there, there are certain standards and, and, uh, and review processes in place mm -hmm. that look at things uh, to try to see if a surgeon needs some remedial help mm -hmm. or maybe change some technique or whatever yeah. to improve their results. Um, lastly, what is one piece of advice you would give to citizens that we could use to keep ourselves safe in a, in a healthcare setting? That's a good question. I think number one, it never hurts to get a second opinion or a third opinion or a fourth opinion. It really depends on what you have. But if you have something fairly straightforward and need your gallbladder out, well, maybe you don't need to have a second or a third opinion. Mm -hmm. But if you have a complex birth defect, if you have a complex cancer, something along those lines, um, you know, maybe you should um, get a second or a third opinion. It doesn't hurt. Uh, that's certainly one thing. Um, another thing you should do is uh, make sure that in surgical parlance that your surgeon's board certified, that they have a certificate from the American Board of Surgery or, or whomever, a governing body, body that says, this surgeon meets a certain standard mm -hmm. by a very reputable uh, review body mm -hmm. that says they, they, uh, they're well-trained, they're well-educated, and they're well-suited well mm -hmm. to do this. Yeah. And then I think, you know, uh, people get sick in the hospital. You have to be careful in the hospital. You know, you, you need to 
to watch out for things. You need to, if if they're giving you a medicine that you maybe haven't taken before, you say, could we, you know, check with my doctor? Am I supposed to get that? I mean, you have to be a, a patient advocate, advocate for yourself. For yourself. Yes. You really, really do. And there's Definitely. nothing wrong with that. In, in pediatrics, it's a little easier because we have a, a mother and usually a father around her advocate uh, for their children. We have a unique thing at Hopkins because we have so many uh, patients from out of the country, mm. uh, out of the hemisphere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we have a wonderful, wonderful, uh, complete uh, interpreter staff who then wow. come and interpret. Uh, even Because many of the families are educated and they're sophisticated and they speak some English, but they feel much more comfortable having yeah. a discussion in their native tongue. Uh -huh. And so, uh, you know, we have, we offer those services too. That's really good. So I think, you know, making sure your surgeon's board certified, making sure you advocate for yourself, mm -hmm. all those things, and ask questions. It doesn't hurt to ask questions. Mm -hmm. You know, if your doctor won't answer your questions, get another doctor. Because, you know, that's important that you understand what you're going through or going to propose to go through uh, sure. in every, every, every step of the way. Thank you. Um, before we close off, I want to give you another big thank you, Dr. Gerhardt, for joining me in this episode today and for sharing your experiences and perspectives. I can confidently say that I have learned a lot from you and appreciate your advice and hope that the listeners feel the same way. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, and with that, this is the end of this episode. This is the last episode of this podcast series and was included as a bonus to capture Dr. Gerhardt's perspective as a healthcare professional and expert witness for numerous medical malpractice cases. I hope that you have learned a lot from this series and will feel a little more confident going into a healthcare facility. I know I have learned a lot myself and really appreciate all of our guests for sharing their experiences, stories, and advice. This is Jasmine Saluja, and this concludes the podcast series, Protecting Patients, Preventing Harm. Thanks for listening.